Welcome to Succession Stories, Insights for Next Generation Entrepreneurs. I'm Lori Barkman. I've spent my career bringing an entrepreneurial approach to mature companies struggling with change. As an outside executive of a third-generation, 120-year-old company, I was part of a long-term succession plan. Now I work with entrepreneurs, privately held companies, and family businesses to develop innovations that create enterprise value and transition plans to achieve their long-term goals. On this podcast, listen in while I talk with entrepreneurs who are driving innovation and culture change. I speak with owners who successfully transition their company and others who experience disappointment along the way. Guests also include experts in multi-generational businesses and entrepreneurship. If you are a next-generation entrepreneur looking for inspiration to grow and thrive, or an owner who can't figure out the best way to transition their closely held company, this podcast is for you. Subscribe to our newsletter for more resources to build value in your business. Visit small.big.com. That's small.big.com and sign up today. Tom Hine is the CEO and principal of Capital Wealth Management. He's an author, certified financial planner, and 25-year veteran of the financial services industry. He's acquired seven wealth management firms and conducted due diligence on more than 100 others. He's also a fourth-degree black belt in karate. In Tom's latest book, The Zen of Business Acquisitions, his goal is to help other small business owners succeed in retirement planning, succession planning, and future mindfulness. A key theme is that M&A comes in all flavors and styles. Whether you're a buyer or a seller, to increase your odds of success, you have to work at being prepared. Tom, welcome to the show. I'm really excited for our conversation today. You're the CEO and principal of Capital Wealth Management in Connecticut with more than 25 years in the financial services industry. And I'm really excited to talk to you about your book and your experience buying financial services practices and this view you have through the lens of martial arts strategies. Your book is called The Zen of Business Acquisitions. How did you come up with the idea for the book? Well, thanks for having me, Lori, and it's a pleasure to be here. And the genesis of the book was that I've been practicing martial arts my whole life, and I want to come up with something positive about the acquisitions business to write, but everybody I'd interviewed has said, oh, that book's already been done. So after about five different discussions with people, I said, okay, well, I want to try something different. I want to write something that's fun, it has stories, it's instructive, But what would make it different would be to have some of the martial arts philosophy weaved in there throughout. So it's not a heavy dose of it, but it's enough that people realize the idea of, you know, working hard, you know, to continue, not giving up and things like that, that we've all grown up with. So that theme was what made it seem fun. When I had my first chapter, I ran it by some people I know very well who said, I think I got something here like this. This theme could work. So I had good feedback. And uh, in the end, it was a joy. It was a joy to write. And it's also very timely. One of my favorite shows I've been watching, this throwback to the 80s, the Karate Kid movies, and now Cobra Kai. I don't know if you've seen it. It's I uh, have. <laughs> so very timely. And I know it goes deeper than that, but I wanted to make sure to make that reference. So 30 years in martial arts. So it's a very specific practice, very precise. And yet acquisitions can be kind of messy. So it'll be fun to talk about some of the things that you've learned along the way. 
And the Zen theme, I want to kind of hone in on that with with them. And before we do, though, the M&A activity, I know this year has been a very different year for M&A activity. It started out hot, slowed down through the summer. Now we're seeing M&A activity kind of picking up here at this time of recording, which is the back part of, of 2020. And we're expecting to see an uptick with sellers, I think, spurring into action where they may be more motivated because of they want to do a transaction while growth can be shown in their business and others because they don't want to wait for another multi-year market cycle and PE firms still have all this dry powder. What trends are you seeing? Yeah. So we'll take one step back on the Zen aspect. We'll talk about beginner's mind is a very important part and the true purpose of Zen. I'll cover those topics. But the trends that I'm seeing now, and I'm going to break up the industry for our listeners. There's three tranches, Lori, that are important to remember. So there's a billion dollars and up AUM. Those are the 800-pound gorillas. I interviewed several of them for my book. And then there's a billion dollars down about 500 million of AUM, asset center management. And the smallest tranche that I'm in is below the 500 million of AUM. Although if my next two acquisitions work out well, I'll be knocking on the door of about 500 million of AUM. So when I answer questions for you or any of the listeners, I try to answer it in terms of a specific tranche because what's happening at the high end, for example, at the large end above a billion, a lot of M&A activity, a lot of private equity money, and people are generally acquiring practices, if you will, or businesses, not just for the asset center management, the AUM, but for the actual intellectual property, what they call the IP. So when they buy a firm, the firm may have a specialty in, let's say, 401ks or asset allocation or third-party asset managers, whatever that specialty is, a lot of the larger firms will acquire that firm knowing they get the intellectual property along with the assets. And when you're from 500 million to a billion of AUM, that middle tier, they're the ones most at risk in this fee compression world because what's happening is they're being threatened by their peers above, you know, people above a billion um, competition. And if they don't innovate with technology, then they're just going to become a commodity. And that's a very big danger. And fortunately, firms below 500 million, which is where I spend most of my universe, many of those firms are what they call silos, solo practitioners. And yet, they're all approaching their 60s or 70s, and some of them are in their 80s, and they have to make a decision even before COVID, what do they want to do with their life's work? And of course, COVID has accelerated that trend. So we're seeing activity at all three levels, but for different reasons. So it'd be interesting as we talk today, if we can make parallels to other industries, I know your specialty is in financial services and that metric you shared of AUM is sort of specific to asset management. If there is a way to generalize it for the audience, that would be good. We have listeners from a lot of different industries. If you can, that'd be great. If not, that's okay too. Because I know in in the interviews that you've conducted for your book, they were primarily financial services, but there were also some software companies and, and some others, correct? Correct. There are. And so, yeah, I will absolutely. And I interviewed several people in my book that were not related to financial services. And I specifically did that, Laurie, so that I could see if my my worldview was applicable to other industries. And sure enough, it was. So we'll absolutely touch upon any of those that we need to. Great. I have a strange habit of reading magazines back to front. I don't know why I've always done that. And I sometimes do that with books. And so I picked up your book. And of course, that's what I did. And 
it was funny because I, I just landed on the perfect chapter for people who are short on time. And the chapter was called How to Hack This Book. Brilliant. Just so brilliant. So I'm going to start there. We're going to start backwards and work our way forwards. A quote that struck me was your summary of lessons learned. And you said, when you are content to be simply yourself and don't compare or compete, everybody will respect you. And that was a quote from Lao Tzu. Why did you include that quote? Well, thank you so much. That was my favorite chapter. And I will say the publisher, I give Georgetown University New Degree Press all the credit for that, is they said people are so compressed for time. They want to know, you know, get to the meat of the book, what's in it. So why that quote resonated with me is across many different industries, whether you're a plumber, electrician, or one of my local guys that runs a car wash in town, I interviewed Mike, you know, in the, in the book. Everybody had this sort of mania. One of my chapters is acquisition mania. Everyone thinks you have to acquire and merge to get bigger. And certainly, if that's your goal in life, and if you're good at it, I say all the power to you. But I also felt that people were being pressured, you know, to do deals and sometimes jump into a bigger swimming pool they weren't ready for. And so this idea of being content, if someone has 500 million of assets, that's a good size firm. And they shouldn't be, they shouldn't feel sort of inadequate that they're not at a billion dollars. You know, if someone has 250 million of AUM, that's a really big achievement. And so they might think, well, I don't manage 10 billion. And I wanted to give people a sense that wherever you are, this book can take you to the next level, but don't be dissatisfied where you are because to survive in this business or any business, for five or 10 years, you should recognize that as a success story in and of itself. Yeah, that's great. I want to talk about the yin and yang and the significance of that. I think in the world of acquisitions, if you are a seller, you want to think like a buyer, right? Because you want to sort of put yourself in those shoes. And likewise, if you're a buyer, you have things that you care about. So can you share what you believe buyers are looking for? Yes. And that one of the chapters I had in there, I had researched a gentleman, a firm, FP Transitions, who had done over 10,000 evaluations, you know, for acquisitions. And so they're one of the experts I sought out. And buyers today, um, as opposed to even five years ago, Lori, are looking for a few key aspects, okay? They're looking for, if they're a larger firm, a cohesive team, right? A team that works well together. They're looking for a company that has instituted technology well. As simple as, we all, we all may have seen this, when you go to your dentist or doctor now, you would get a text when you're in the parking lot, right? And you have to tell them, I'm in parking lot, slot number nine, and they would come out and test you for COVID or they would do a temperature check. Think about all the different ways we've had to adapt for COVID and take that same theme and buyers want somebody or some team who's at least thought through those beginning issues. Of, of technology and automation. So for example, the Schedule One app or Calendly, and we might've used that where you go right on someone's calendar, you'd be surprised how many people haven't adopted that, which is a huge time saver. People know exactly when you're available, they can schedule their time. So that's number one. Number two, they would love to have a team or a company you know, that has a mission or a vision. They want somebody who really is out there every day with a conscientious way of doing business, not sort of random or haphazard. So I just used my local car wash guy as an example. He said, we want your cars to be the cleanest in town, right? Simple mantra, but he's in competition with all these new car washes that have these monthly passes. I don't know if anyone's seen them in their own town, but 
you'll see a lot of these car washes are opening up because the private equity money got in their business and it takes about $5 million off the ground to get some one of these things built and up and running. But when they do, they're trying to get monthly revenue, just like Netflix is trying to get monthly revenue. So each business has to have a passion, a focus, what they do. And more importantly, they've got to adapt to this changing world of COVID with technology. Those are two biggies. That's what I see with clients too. And I work with clients and business owners to create sustainable businesses that one day can thrive without them. And so if you think, begin with the end in mind that one day this business is going to be there without you, whether you're going to pass it on to family, whether you're going to sell to a third party or to your management team, the elements that you described, absolutely. And I, and I see that too. They're very clear in their mission. They're clear with their vision. They're conscientious. They have great relationships with their customers. The growth potential and the financial performance needs to be there. That's sort of like table stakes, right? But right. these other pieces that acquirers look for that are important and can be accretive to value, it's, it's quite significant because it can be things like you mentioned, a differentiation in the market and, and having recurring revenue models and certainly customer satisfaction. My experience with a company was we had a lot of customer concentration and it was a big, big risk to us. And companies get very comfortable when they have one particular customer that they're so you know, deep in a relationship, but it's 40, 50% of their business. And while that might look great on paper, in practicality, it's very risky to the buyer. Absolutely. In fact, Lori, over the years, one of the other themes I want to share with listeners, if you are in either the acquisition mode or if you're on the other side thinking of downsizing, what they call sunsetting, really have good corporate attorneys or good contact because the legal work in my space and others, you'd be surprised how many people spend their whole life working on a business. And let's say their corporate lawyer is a good friend, but he or she is not focused in that area. You don't want those documents to reflect somebody who's sort of uh, a part-timer, you know, in that line of work. I just want to mention that because one of the big things that we bring to the table, we've had so many deals over the years. We know all the legal paperwork inside and out. So the buyer on my side has it. The seller doesn't have to go and recreate the wheel. That's an important aspect of it. So just as a, a note to everyone, you really want to have good legal counsel at the right time. Yeah, absolutely. It's important to surround yourself with great advisors when you need them. And some companies have established relationships with, with lawyers and accounting firms that are, again, deep, you know, positive relationships, but they might not have the expertise when they're talking about a sale or when they're talking about an acquisition or they are looking to transition their company. So that's a good call out. One of the other things, Tom, that you wrote about in the book was culture. And the reference most people know of the importance when you're buying a home is location, 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 right? Or you're buying an existing property. And what you said about culture was culture, 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 and how companies need to mesh instead of match. What did you mean by that? Excellent. Yes, culture, if the listeners take anything away from today, it's that if you're you know, buying or selling and that culture with the owner or owners is not really fluent and uh, sort of seamless, you really have to have the red flags come up early. And that by, I mean that by you don't necessarily have to have an identical person that's going to take your business and do exactly what you did. In fact, some people would argue that if you try to find someone that does exactly what you did, then you're not ready to let go. You really want to find somebody 
That's why I say mesh versus match. If they mesh, they can take the good of what you do, um, and then they can take the good of what they do. In fact, just as an analogy to martial arts, all the best karate instructors I ever studied under, even some of the masters around the world, would always say, take the best that I give to you and the best of your own instructor and add them together, right? That's the accretive part. And they would also tell you, we're all human, ignore the worst aspects of teaching that you were taught, you know, because everybody is going to be taught sometimes things that are incorrect. So from an analogy, from a buyer standpoint, I'm telling the seller, um, when I'm looking to acquire you, I'm going to take all the good things that you did for your clients and replicate them in some fashion, but also add all the things that we do. And if you're the seller, you want to be able to have somebody say, I can pretty much check off all the boxes um, on what you do, but I'm going to add something, a special sauce, you know, that you haven't seen before. And that way the clients get this feeling of, oh my gosh, this was a great move for both parties. Yeah, definitely. And buyers are looking to essentially reduce risk and increase the chances that this acquisition is going to work out, whether it's an add-on, whether it's a strategic acquisition to consolidate in the market. There, there's lots of reasons why a buyer would look to acquire a new firm. And there's lots of challenges because you don't really know. It's, this is a big guessing game. You're, you're doing all the analysis. You're working all the numbers. You're doing all the due diligence to make sure it's working out as, as the buyer. And so I'm sure you've seen along the way some difficult acquisitions. And I was wondering if you could talk a bit about that. You included a chapter on that in your book. How do you sniff out misalignments? Yeah, that I would tell, again, another takeaway. Um, one of the favorite quotes I heard in the book, someone said, the best deals are the bad ones you never do, right? And again, I mentioned this. I probably looked at over 100 firms in the past decade. I'm working on numbers eight and nine right now. They're going to be staggered, right? So if that gives you any idea, and I probably have talked to more than, you know, a few hundred people, but in terms of due diligence, you know, over a hundred. So number one, I like to start off with a confidentiality agreement. And you'd be surprised how many people, if they're not comfortable signing that early on, that just tells me they're either new to the process or they're not comfortable sharing information, which is fine, but clearly that means you can't get in the weeds with due diligence. And I'm, I'm sure almost every company, whether you run a manufacturing company or a service company, right? It all comes down to profit and loss, balance sheet, income statement. So I want to make sure that any seller gets comfortable. And if they're not, again, it doesn't mean it's not a deal killer. It just means either they've never been through this before, which can happen. They can be the first time. But if they have been through, let's say, several different potential suitors and they've turned them all down, that's a usually a good warning sign that either they're not ready or that all those people have uh, been pushing. So number one, documentation, right? If they're comfortable signing confidentiality. Number two, um, you really wanna get a sense, a big one is what are their plans from the day they start talking to the day after the acquisition is done? When everything is done, paperwork signed, are they planning to Typically, if you're in New England, you know, go to Florida for a good part of the year and spend time with their spouse. Uh, do they want to do more charity work? If they don't have solid plans for what they want to do, I've learned looking back, I could have saved myself a lot of time by not forcing the issue along because they weren't ready, right? They had nothing to replace that time with. So there's a term called rich and ready, right? Or uh, that's one of them is that someone has enough money and they're ready to do it. They're ideal. 
Um, but sometimes people are you know, poor and tired and they haven't worked hard enough. So you have to figure out where in that spectrum they are through conversations and meetings. Yeah, and it could be anywhere in between. I liked the matrix you had in your book, which is on the X and Y, right? Sort of trying to figure out when is the seller ready to sell. So you have financial readiness and you have the mental readiness. Correct. And especially now, the, the tired, maybe they're not poor, but maybe they are tired. And my comment earlier in this conversation was, you know, maybe they're seeing that they don't want to go through another market cycle. You know, we went through 2008, 2009. Here we are, 2020. And, and they just don't want to, you know, to go through that. So that readiness might be, hey, the time is right now. And given the numbers of where they are with COVID, and maybe it's depressed their valuation a bit. And so yes. I don't want to go too deep on valuations. I know there's a lot of variables there, but that might be something that in the due diligence process, there's a little bit of the COVID forgiveness. And it's more about what's the potential of this business going forward. Financial services is very specific, but you have companies, let's say maybe in the energy space, or if you have retail hospitality, certainly healthcare, some of these industries are doing better than others right now, but what's the longer term picture? And I think one thing that we've seen is certainly the essential business. You know, what is that definition? And is it a short-term kind of spike right now for those businesses, or do they have a likelihood of those numbers to continue? So there's a lot of, a lot of question marks, a lot of dynamics right now. Right. And I think for everybody, depending on what business you're in, I've always said the sooner you start with a theme or a process, the better. The best succession plans um, are the ones that are five to 10 years. Believe it or not, they really take a long time. And I'm working on that with my own firm in one capacity. And um, I think that's really important for people to realize. Also, I do want to make this really important distinction between continuity, Lori, and succession plans, because yes. a continuity plan is God forbid you wake up and that's the day you get hit by the proverbial beer truck, right? That's where you didn't plan to leave the business, but it happens overnight. So I call it baby steps. A lot of people don't know that you can have a continuity plan, which can be a simple one or two page plan that just says, you know, this is the break glass in case of emergency. And at least having that would tell your employees and your clients that you have a game plan so continuity plans are often ignored. Everyone thinks that a succession plan has to be a, you know, a three-year well-thought-out uh, process, which is ideal, but the succession plan is more of a five- or ten-year cycle that you really want to make sure you've thought it through, but the continuity plan is the emergency plan, and you actually should have both. They're two different plans, so oftentimes when I'm working with a seller that may take a year or two, I actually have them build the continuity plan in case something happens to them so that their spouse is taken care of. And then of course, on the day we sign the actual agreement, the continuity plan goes away because now we have the succession plan. So really key component, people assume they're lumped into one, but they're not. Yeah, and it's a great point for continuity plan. On another episode, I had a guest who was in the insurance space and we talked a lot about that. You know, it could be death, divorce, any number of issues that can be very disruptive from a continuity standpoint. And those should be should be proactively addressed because otherwise for the surviving spouse or their surviving partner, it can be quite messy. Absolutely. And yeah. one other hint too, if you're looking at what would be considered a good continuity or succession plan, when you have a draft version, you can take your very best clients aside or customers and ask them, 
and say, look, I'm thinking long-term you know, about my company. Let's assume that maybe you don't have children that want to take over. So you say, I'm thinking long-term without even naming who your successor is. Say, I've been thinking about this might be my process. What would you, you know, Mr. or Mrs. Client or Mr. or Mrs. Customer think of this? And believe it or not, your top five or 10 customers or clients will tell you everything you need to know, right? Because you'd want them to say either, wow, I want you around forever, but if you weren't, this would work for me. Or conversely, as one top producer told me, his first run at it, his top client said, no, this is a terrible plan and I wouldn't stay with your firm if you passed on. So that was his you know, big indication to fix it. And he did. Wow. That's a pretty bold recommendation. That feels kind of risky to open yourself up that way for feedback. It takes some internal fortitude. <laughs> it does. But I think if you couch it the right way, and it also depends on your age, you know, if you're in your thirties or forties, I wouldn't necessarily say you'd rush to do it. Maybe you just have that continuity plan. But I think anybody in their 50s or older, realistically, especially with COVID, right? We now know the world's changed overnight. I think if you told your, asked your, we use, um, we have a, an annual advisory board. We do it virtual now. But so we used to have basically like a board of directors, but an advisory board. We would meet with them every year anyway, saying, what can we do to improve, you know, what capital wealth management offers you? And so we got great feedback. So in a sense, we already had built the capacity for that. And I would encourage anyone uh, listening to know that if you have your own advisory board, then every year you're bringing up important topics. And this just becomes another important topic. And clients or customers love it when you think enough of them to get their feedback. I mean, that is just priceless. It is. And we have covered the topic of advisory boards on this show. And I'm glad you brought it up. I will include links to that in the show notes because for firms that are around, let's say, 20 million in revenue, I don't know what that means on an, on an AUM basis in financial services, but let's say around 20 million to 50 million. So 20 million in revenue, you might have an advisory board and maybe around 50 million in revenue. The benchmark is to have more of an independent board of directors with fiduciary responsibilities. And so for companies that are out there, CEOs that, and owners that do not yet have those, maybe even thinking about a family board might be of interest. And so there are resources out there for you if you're, if you're starting to think about that. So I just wanted to mention. Yeah, it makes complete sense. And as I said, we also rotate our board. So it's not the same people. So we love to get a fresh look. If we brought on a new client or a new practice, we might bring a client from that practice. It'll be easier when we can meet in person again when we get through you know, the COVID. But in the short run, I think it's just helpful for everyone to think about having some sort of advisory board. Yeah, that's great. I want to talk about the difference between and the relationship between strategic planning and succession planning. I work with clients on strategic planning, and a lot of times it does segue into succession planning because what my focus is, is working with clients to build value in their company over time so they can one day thrive without them. So in that future, like you said, whether it's five years, 10 years, down the road, they're envisioning some transition. Let's work on that now so that you get to the point where you have options. And so for me, succession planning is really key and it dovetails so nicely with succession planning. What's been your experience with that? Well, yeah, so I think I've found over the years that I've done this now coming on year 15 or 16, is that believe it or not, when someone creates, at least, again, this is definitely specific for financial services because I, I can't comment on other ones, other industries, but as soon as these advisors created this succession plan, you know what always happened? And I, I will say intuitively, I thought it might happen on my first acquisition that was 15 years ago, 
But ever since then, as soon as clients and customers realize you've built you know, a second generation if you're a firm, you know what happens? You collect more assets. And every time, um, I'm stunned to realize that these sellers, if you will, are saying, oh my gosh, ever since I told people about this succession plan, people open up their wallets and say, well, I had another account here at a major firm. Or that's because they now realize, because they were not officially telling the advisor this, but in the back of their mind, they're like, wow, Mr. or Mrs. Jones is getting older and they're healthy, but I don't want to put all my eggs in one basket. And now when they introduce that person to our team or another firm, if, you know, if they're going with another firm, that firm says, oh my gosh, yeah, we're going to be your backup. And so then the clients and customers feel comfortable saying, wow, I don't mind if you've done a good job with my assets and been a good steward, I don't mind turning over more to you because you've demonstrated you're thinking beyond right, the next five or 10 years, maybe the next 20, 25 years. So that's a huge plus. And the second thing, honestly, is for family, spouses and children. A lot of times they're really, um, and I'll say mostly it's dad, but sometimes it's mom, right? They're really um, at peace to know that mom or dad created this backup plan so that they're taken care of. And I don't mean always it's money. They just want to make sure because the business often occupies such a big part of people's lives that they want to make sure that the family is taken care of. You don't want to be the shoemaker's kids, you know, especially if you're in wealth management or if you're a law firm, right? Telling people to get their wills done, you want to make sure you're getting your own for your own firm. Right. And having a view of the long game, it's a point that you emphasize in the book. And we said we would come back to the beginner's mind concept. And maybe this is a good transition for that. I think the long game in all of this as a business owner is something about you win by being proactive. I think were words in your book and that you've been astounded by people who just were not letting go, right? They've kind of worked themselves to their grave, unfortunately. Yes. You know, they've ignored their health or their job, their focus. They were internalizing. And so it affected their health. It affected relationships. They became so intertwined from an identity standpoint that they just couldn't separate. And, and you included this Zen proverb, which I just loved, which is let go or be dragged. Yes. Thank you. So the two things, uh, and that is a big influencer, I think for all of us, by the way, if you think about life in general, um, and I've gotten this through yoga practice too, you know, I, I'm a more of a beginner in yoga, but I've realized that a lot of times when you're in the middle of a martial arts or a yoga practice, you are letting go. You're focusing on, let's say, that posture or in martial arts, that kata. And I think especially today, right, where everything has been, we've been cooped up more than we probably ever have been. Um, you need to learn to let some things go. That doesn't mean give up, by the way. Letting go does not mean give up. And letting go also means, you know, there's a famous, uh, I love this famous uh, Buddhist joke. They said, you ever hear about the, uh, the vacuum, you know, the Buddhist vacuum? They go, what's the Buddhist vacuum? It has no attachments. That's a little <laughs> bit of humor there, but I, th I thought that was a funny one. That is good. All right. But um, in terms of um, this, the true purpose of Zen, the reason why I wrote about that in the beginning is to see things as they are, right? So whether you're going through an acquisition or anything else in life, you want to have that lens of what is really happening here. Sometimes we wish something were better than it was, or we might be worried about something being too negative. So we're not focusing on the present. So the idea of, of Zen, meaning find out what's really going on, both in due diligence, you know, what's happening with the accounting numbers. So that was one aspect is not to fool ourselves 
with some grand plan that we're going to, oh, I'm going to buy 10 companies a year and blah, blah, blah. And all of a sudden that's not reality. And then the other aspect I love was the, the beginner's mind aspect I wrote about. Um, the best analogy for us in martial arts, when you're a white belt, um, you don't know anything. And that's good. You come into the dojo or the training hall and you're a beginner. So you should have an open mind. Um, and there's a joke among martial arts people that said the most dangerous person to spar is a white belt because they don't know anything and their, their arms and limbs are coming at you from all directions. <laughs> and so we often say it's good practice because you don't know what's going to happen. But take that same beginner's mind, right, whether you're beginning in yoga or cycling or tennis, and you literally, if you hire a good coach, right, you literally have to worry about the grip of your racket and the angle of your racket and your posture and your hips and your knees. Well, the same thing, if you're going to become a, uh, in the acquisition space or if you're looking to sell, you have to have that beginner's mind and really educate yourself. So find a good attorney. If your CPA is maybe close to retirement, you might ask him or her, hey, who else can I talk to? Because someday I might want to sell and I really need somebody who knows how to do the books and records. And again, if you prepare ahead of time, this will become less traumatic. A lot of people don't do any, uh, we talked about working to their death, sadly. And part of it is no one ever gave them a roadmap okay, what are the next steps? What do you need to do to let go so you can enjoy your life, enjoy the fruits of your labor, but also make sure your clients are taken care of? So again, the beginner's mind says approach it like you were taking tennis or skiing lessons and you're going to have to learn you know, all the steps along the way. And then the true purpose is then, as I mentioned, was seeing things exactly as they are and not sort of building them up in your mind. Right. Well, there's a, a couple of core things there. One is for people to have a vision for what's next. If they do have a desire to, to do something else, whether it's to go run another company, start another company, to go sit on the beach and drink Mai Tais, travel the world once we're all allowed to, you know, things of that nature, spend more time with grandkids, maybe get remarried, you know, right. whatever, whatever it might be, people excited for their next. And I think that's really critical because if they're not, and if they are still around the business too, I think that's another dynamic. There's a friend of mine that we've talked about this as an issue with his company. He's an outside hire and the founder is still around as the chairman, but is very involved in the business, in the details, and is maybe too involved and causing some issues there. And how do entrepreneurs separate? And so when they're selling, and there's maybe a transition with the buyer. Do you see that, that there's issues in that transition or is it usually at the close, the key owner is out at that point? Yeah, so I've seen both ends of the spectrum, Lori, and I'll tell you, they work exactly as you'd expect. So my first acquisition, I say often by luck. Sometimes I said, I'd rather be you know, lucky than smart. Um, my first one, the owner was in the same state with me as Connecticut. And what happened was his best friend in Cape Cod, Massachusetts, years, years ago, passed away suddenly, was an advisor. And the spouse tried to get in the office to get the files. And the firm was like, nope, you're not licensed, you can't get in here. And she didn't know that. You know, To her credit, she tried. And because she wasn't licensed, all of his clients were separated and we call scattered to the four winds, right? They either had to find a new advisor. And in the end, this gentleman saw that happen and said, boy, I don't. So that was a motivator, that picture for him of his wife, who was very successful in real estate, but didn't know investments. So he said, I don't want my life's work. So in that case, it was perfect because he was motivated. He had a game plan. They wanted to move to Cape Cod. 
and I say lucky for me because that worked exactly the way it was supposed to work. And then since that time, as we find out, I've had other acquisitions or potential ones where the owner couldn't let go. I literally had one, a gentleman from another state, New England, on the day of closing, came to my office in Glastonbury, Connecticut, sat there. I could see by his body language something was wrong, and he said, I can't sign. I said, okay, if you're not ready, we can put this off. He said, no, you don't understand. I just can't do this. I said, really? And he said, uh, I'm just going to retire. And I said, but who's going to take on your clients? He said, this is too stressful for me. My clients will realize what I didn't do because they're going to see all the things that your firm does. He completely reversed in his mind the benefit you know, of selling. And I'll never forget this to this day, as far as I know, um, he walked away and he's actually sent me referrals. So it's not like he didn't like working with us. He gave me some great clients, but he could not let go. And he was embarrassed to think of what his clients would find out. And I said to him, that's the wrong attitude, but you can't, some people have that mindset. Uh, another one is very important. And you happen to mention remarriage. If there is a second marriage, you know, oftentimes be aware that there might be children involved in the firm, you know, of the second marriage for a good reason, but all of a sudden there might be family dynamics in there where uh, the spouse might say, well, I don't really want you to sell yet because, right, my son or daughter is able to work at your firm and they still might have a job, but it's different. You know, when the founding owner leaves, there often can be a shuffling of personnel. So the dynamics are not just about what the owner and let's say your uh, your significant other, your spouse wants, but what are the other family members related to? So most of the businesses I've worked with were either the founder owner <clears throat> or they might've been um, a senior level person. And I'll give you one other story in a minute about when one didn't go well, you asked about a couple of scenarios. So I would focus on what are the goals of the primary people because you don't wanna have a minority partner or someone else who tries to torpedo the deal because it doesn't work for them. So that would be important to be aware of. Yeah, you certainly wanna know who all the key parties are to avoid those torpedoes for sure. Absolutely. Um, no, those are all great insights. I want to kind of wind down with favorite quotes. Uh, there's so many in this book, and I was including them in our discussion today. And I'll mention one more, and then I'm going to ask you for yours. So I know you've probably got a whole list here. But in the book, you talked about the value of, of having a business coach and having coaches around you, advisors around you. And you even just referred to that you know, now in terms of experiences and suggested that people add coaching to the top of their to-do list. So I couldn't agree more. And uh, it sounds like you've been a great coach for people and, and I enjoy doing that as well. And the quote that you included about learning from others was the older I get, the less I know. What do you yes. think that really means for business owners? Is that something that you think they can relate to? I do. And I will give a shout out to both Strategic Coach and Ron Carson, two of the different programs I've been involved with. What I mean, that's the white belt attitude, is what happens is the older I get, the more I realize there is to know. And I had a great quote, uh, I think it was from Ron, but he said, I, I've learned I'd rather be the librarian, not the library, right? I want to know where to get the information. I don't have to be the library anymore. And that was a great quote that Ron shared with me. So what I'm saying is, especially like when I wrote this book. I mean, I interviewed so many people, even some that didn't make it in the final you know, cut of the book. There were so many chapters, the publisher said, no way, you gotta, you gotta cut this thing down. And I said, oh my gosh, but there's all these great stories. you know. And so the more I get into this, the more fascinating it is, and the more I realize for all of us that I keep learning. 
And I think that's the that's what I call the white belt attitude or the beginner's mind is. And if you don't have that attitude, especially during COVID, I think you're in really danger of sort of going down a tunnel vision and not really um, exploring all the possibilities that you or your firm or subsequent owners might have. I mean, there's a big, big world out there. Yeah, absolutely. So we covered a lot of quotes today, but now, of course, I'm going to ask you the question, if there's any remaining favorites that you have about entrepreneurship that you'd like to share. Well, there's two. I, I mean, there's more than two, but I couldn't resist. So one is more of a practical one from, from Buddha. And it said, three things cannot long remain hidden, the sun, the moon, and the truth. Right? And that resonated with me, Lori, because in life, as in business, right? You can't hide the sun, you can't hide the moon, and truth, the truth about your business, let's say, and due diligence, or the truth about where you're going with the business. So I love that one because it obviously was from a long time ago, you know, that quote, but it resonated with me as something simple like the sun, the moon, and the truth. Um, but a better one in terms of just modern day is Chris Voss is a former, uh, is a well-known speaker, he's got some books out, a former FBI hostage negotiator. So talk about when the pressure's on. And he said, uh, prepare, prepare, prepare. When the pressure's on, you don't rise to the occasion, you fall to your highest level of preparation, right? So, because we're always taught about you'll rise to the occasion. And his point was, no, it's like going to the gym every day or preparing, you're going to default to the highest level of preparation. And I love that one because it is true. You know, whether it's you're driving down the road and you have to slam on the brakes, right? You're going to react. Um, same thing with business. If you want to get good at acquisitions or succession planning, you've got to prepare. You've got to get knowledgeable. Listen to, listen to podcasts, right? Get yourself up to speed because there's a lot of information out there. So hopefully that's, that's a quote that I love that's more modern. I love it. Thank you, Tom. How do people find you online? So uh, website, easiest one. I'm on LinkedIn as well, uh, Capital Wealth Management on LinkedIn. There's also www dot capitalwm.com in Glastonbury. I'm also on Amazon you know, under Tom Hine, you know, H-I-N-E. I got the author out there so they can check my author bio on the Zen of business acquisitions. So a few different ways to find me. And uh, more importantly, um, I just want to share some good knowledge for them. And if I can prevent them from making any bad mistakes, it was all worth it. Wonderful. That's a great mission. I love the title of your book. I love what it's all about. Tom, thanks so much for being with me today. Well, thanks, Laurie. Innovation, transition, growth. Easy to say, but hard to do. If you're an entrepreneur facing these challenges, I get it. I work with businesses from small to big to achieve your vision. Visit smalldotbig.com to learn more. I'd love to connect with you. Subscribe to Succession Stories. And if you enjoy the show, please share a rating and review. Thanks for listening.